Welcome back, Juniors, to another episode of Read Keeper's Journey. Let's do a quick recap for the last couple of weeks. The Unthing met the high priest and gave him a voice. The high priest assassinated the king, and the kids escaped the palace and are on their way to the rendezvous point. Some important plot points are the kids are changing slowly into what they most likely resemble in this world. Michael and Heather both have an ability to touch the Omnia in a greater capacity and manipulate creation. The plan now is for the kids to be transported by Trendok to the Gigantis border where they can take the Unthing slash Woman with the Eyes by surprise and defeat her before they change too much and lose their power. But she wants them powerful enough to use but weak enough to defeat. So it's a race against time. Now, Back to the story. Chapter 51 Midday had come and gone by the time Steve's party made it to the rendezvous point. Evidently, being public enemy number one tended to greatly increase estimated travel times. It seemed that every fifth step they had to duck down or dash around a corner or dodged the plethora of robed priests combing the city for them. Poor Bear, he was a head taller than the crowds of people gumming up the streets, and had a walk nearly bent in half during their trek across the city. It was one of the few times where Steve was grateful for being less than average height. His giant friend tended to draw eyes wherever he went, something Steve knew that Bear hated. Steve liked introverts. Something about their quiet nature appealed to him as well as their ability to go vast lengths of time without speaking a word. Well, vast from his perspective. Steve argued that five minutes didn't seem that long until you try to hold your breath for the duration. So yes, for him, not saying something for 20 minutes could feel like a lifetime, and people who didn't feel the need to fill up the emptiness with insights or crack jokes, well, they fascinated him. He also considered it the ultimate compliment when an introvert accepted him into their strange and silent world and allowed him to hear those thoughts that swirled behind their observant eyes. Steve was surprised to find that most introverts do enjoy social interaction, but on their terms and with those with whom they trust. So when Steve found an introvert, like Bear, he made it a point to befriend them, kind of like a a self-challenge. Of course, his giant friend was not your everyday run-of-the-mill introvert, the kind that lacks confidence in social situations or who got nervous around groups of people. Bear just enjoyed being silent. He enjoyed just being. And those first few days when they left that crazy giant tree, which felt like half a year ago, Bear said he was enjoying listening to the earth breathe. Steve remembered thinking that during those quiet times, that's what his friend was doing, just listening to the world. And here, for the first time, he really got to hear what the earth had to say. Steve brought his mind back to the present and examined the park that served as their meetup spot. Various large trees shaded the area, which was smaller and denser than the palace park. It also felt more like a metaph forest than the other one, with a wide variety of trees, all grown to maturity. The air was sweet with fruit blossoms and the warm, mulchy smell of tall redwoods. The park looked empty, but Steve could smell the dryad's weird armor. 
It reminded him of the effervescence of champagne. The tiny bubbles tickled his nose and kept the liquid in constant motion, even when it appeared standing still, much like the armor that seemed to flow and change with the surrounding colors. His eyes said that the little forest was empty, but his nose said that they were surrounded. Scavia, the shiny centurion, gave out a quick bird-like whistle. Heather and the Amazons materialized, some emerging out of bushes and some dropping from trees. At the sight of his girlfriend, Steve let out a breath that he didn't know he was holding. His sudden relief of seeing her was quickly replaced by that familiar stomach-dropping, heart-pounding rush that always overcame him whenever they reunited. She was gorgeous. Steve never understood Ken's fawning over Callista, whose nose just seemed a little too turned up at the tip for his liking. Heather's nose, on the other hand, was perfect. He gave her a long hug and a quick kiss. She wasn't big on PDA, but she indulged him from time to time. Sweet canned corn, girl, am I glad to see you. How'd you get out of the castle? Heather smiled, looking down at him. He may be shorter, but she was definitely taller. Secret passage. I think all the Metaf quarters have them. We just slipped out. It was easy. Steve smacked himself in the forehead. That little tidbit of information would have been helpful instead of fighting his way out of the palace. But it wouldn't have been nearly as fun. Still, he should have been able to notice it. And looking back, there was something strange about that wall in his bedroom. It seemed less opaque, but he didn't think anything of it at the time. You're hurt, Heather said, grabbing his arm. It's nothing. Hey, easy, Steve said, going up on his tiptoes. Sorry, Heather said out loud, but the look she gave him said, don't be such a baby, as she pulled back the once white makeshift bandage. That's deep. It's fine. Steve tried to retrieve his arm from her and tuck it behind his back, but Canaeus had spied it already and was stomping on over to him. It's not like he didn't like his weapons instructor exactly. She was just not overly endowed in the sense of humor department. The gruff dryad grabbed his arm away from Heather brusquely, yet with an odd, gentle touch. Hmm, not bad. Did Bear bind this? She asked, rotating his arm as she examined the bandage. Steve nodded. Next time, tell him to tie it tighter. He can be too gentle. She pulled the bandage back. Dagger? Steve nodded again, expecting her to complain that he let his opponent get too close. How many? Six. It was her turn to nod as she looked him over for any other injuries. You did well, Steve Voss. Go see Zine. She'll patch it up and tell her to give you and the other boys a few strips. You're gonna need them. Steve was amazed to see that the patch was not a figure of speech. After Zine unpleasantly scrubbed his forearm clean, she produced a piece of gauze as wide as his palm and twice as long. This is a hoyak. The wood is shaved with the blade blessed by our mother during the summer equinox, during the sun festival. She held up the tissue paper thin strip. The healing is rarely used on any other than my sisters. Canaeus has given you a great honor, Steve, boss and her blessing, naming you a warrior of worth. With his arms still wet and Heather holding the skin together, Zine wrapped the nearly transparent film over the wound and around his forearm. She sang something sad and sweet under her breath as she worked. The injury had begun bleeding again after being cleaned, but the thin material absorbed it, turning red and then white and then nearly transparent. 
The gauze felt cool at first, but then a warmth spread throughout his arm, and it made it itch something fierce for a few minutes. Steve flexed his arm, and the material flexed with it. It felt as if something wrapped his arm in a transparent silk. There was a faint sheen to it, too, when he rotated it, like a rainbow you would see in the pools of water on the road. Woza, he said. That's a neat trick. Say thank you, Steve, Heather said. Thank you, Steve. Heather mussed his hair, something she could easily do now with his newfound lack of height. Stacy's right. You are a goober. Hey, hey, watch the do. After Zine gave Steve some of the wonderful Metaf elixir that put the itch in his arm to sleep, he and Heather sought out the rest of the group. His friends sat in a small circle, apart from the rest of the gathering. Stacy was explaining the colors and the ribbons of her crazy braided hair as they walked up. If Steve didn't know any better, he would have thought that Mike's sister belonged with the other Metaf. And this one is for duty, Stacy recited, showing her black ribbon that I may fulfill my obligations to my sister. Her life is my life, and her steps are my steps. Obligations? Michael asked. What kind of obligations? And what do you mean by your life is her life? Don't wig out, Stacy tisked. It just means that we're like bonded together. Bonded? We're connected, like deeply, and our choices affect one another. Don't give me that look. It's really cool. Just remember, Stace, Michael said in that insufferable adult tone of his, when this is over, we're going home. So be careful of the connections you make here. I just wanted to share something cool with you. You don't have to go all dad on me, Stacy said and stormed away. Kids, am I right? Steve said, plopping down in front of Mike. I'll go talk to her, Heather said, turning away. Thanks, Heather. Michael said with a sigh and a shake of his head. So how did you get out? Steve asked. Do you know about the secret passage too? No, Leander and I wore robes as a disguise. It worked like a charm. Well, almost. There was one little hiccup, but we made it out okay. You? Let's just say I'd kiss Canaeus on the mouth for her training if I didn't think she'd beat me to a pulp. Steve thought the robes was another good idea, but he doubt him or Bear could pull it off. Their height drew too much attention. What's the plan? We wait until dark and then skedaddle? If Trindok shows up. If Trindok shows up, Steve repeated. Chapter 52 All afternoon, Michael's anxiety grew with the lengthening of the shadows. If Trindok didn't show up, they were going to be in a world of hurt. Michael had no doubt the high priest was scouring every nook and cranny for them, but in true infuriating form, the wizard showed up just as Michael was going to insist to Zoe that they formulate another plan of escape. Trindok materialized from the shadows with a purposeful stride and a staff in hand. He explained that the plan had changed, but not too much. They were still to meet at a warehouse against the wall in the northeast corner of the city. When he said that they had to find a secret passage in the building, Steve grumbled something that Michael didn't quite catch. Once out of the city, they would travel west to an open field where someone named Salsus would greet them with supplies. Then, Trendok would open a portal near the Gigantus border, and from there, they would begin the final leg of their journey. It all sounded easy enough, 
But if today had taught him anything, it was that planning and execution were two totally different animals. They split off in several groups to keep a low profile. Michael looked at his party, Steve, Bear, Heather, Ken, and their guide, Zine. He regretted letting Stacy out of his sight, but figured her being surrounded by a group of Metaf warriors was probably better than under the watchful eye of a big brother. He had also watched her and Calista interact the past few days, and it was obvious that the Dryad was not about to let Stacy get away with anything. Out of the park, Michael began to feel better, at least by a little. Instead of sitting still and waiting to be discovered, they were sneaking through the city expecting to be discovered. The park was set in a residential area, which meant more kids dressed as goblins and ghouls roaming around the streets petitioning people and homes for goodies. Aside from the children, adults joined in on the fun as well, the way some staggered said that they had begun enjoying themselves much earlier in the day. Michael saw exotheneo costumes that were much too realistic for his liking, but there were also centurion soldiers, though in a different style of armor than they wore today. Michael saw several groups wearing white hooded cloaks like those of Zoe and her friends, once, peeking around a corner, Michael muttered what was the point of them splitting up if the dryads kept crossing their path. Zine explained that the Metaf robes were a costume. She said that the past several years, it had become popular with the Hyperborean adolescents to dress in white robes as a way to protest the atrocities committed during the war, which was started by greed. Michael figured if they were anything like the teenage girls in his high school, they did it less for a cause and more to grate on the nerves of their parents. Torches and oil lamps lit the streets, making the whole scene picturesque. The warm night bathed in the glow of flames was almost too perfect. Accompanied with the cries of the children whooping through the early night, Michael half expected to turn the corner and only to discover that they were on a movie set. Apart from the whole fleeing for their lives thing, it was a perfect night, and Michael would have loved to stroll the streets and soak in the ambiance of the festivities. Some of the costumes were pretty impressive. Michael didn't remember much from his fight with the Exotheneo, or the Exos as Steve had come to call them. Mostly, he remembered long, jutting teeth and black, bent limbs. He unconsciously rubbed at his shoulder where one poisonous bite almost claimed his life. Something about the way they moved, too. It was like they had too many joints. Michael shivered. He saw one small group of kids, all dressed like the monsters, with one walking ahead and sniffing the air. Talk about getting into character he thought. Its eyes fell on him, reflecting back pale light, like those of a dog's when struck by a flashlight. Um, guys, Steve said, echoing Michael's fears. I don't think those are kids. The sniffer pointed a twisted finger at them and howled, a sick wailing sound. It was cut short by an arrow sprouting from its throat. Do we run? Steve asked as he hefted the black stone hammer. You cannot outrun the Exotheneo, Zine said, drawing another arrow from the quiver at her side. The remaining monsters charged for them, devouring the span of the courtyard with crooked, disjointed, loping movements. Michael drew Oakshot and cleared his mind, trying to remember the lessons of Canaeus. Two leapt, claws extended, and mouths gaping with needle-like teeth. Michael struck and sliced through one, lopping off its arm as the other crumpled with an arrow sticking from its eye. Michael rolled to dodge a talon and cut another's feet out from under it and stood to face his next opponent. But there was none. Six twisted bodies lay strewn on the cobblestone floor. One withered on the ground until Bear punctured its misshapen head with his vouge. 
and then vomited from either the sight or the action. Michael did not know. Everyone okay? Michael said, his heart thudding in his ears. They all nodded, Bear wiping at his mouth, Zine with an arrow half-drawn, still scanning the streets, and Steve looking up with his arm around Heather as she brushed tears from her eyes. We must make haste, Zine said. They are searching for us. The most direct route is best now. They followed her lead, Michael bringing up the rear as he replayed the fight in his head, an action he would repeat with all the fights he would have for years to come. Apart from sparring in his martial arts classes, this was the first real battle he had when his emotions didn't dictate his actions. His body seemed free as it slipped into the movements Caneus had drilled into him while his mind sought for places to strike. There was that theme again, he thought as he scanned the streets. Freedom, not devoid of emotions, but free from their control. Like connecting with the Omnia, it seemed so evident. He just hoped he can keep from forgetting how it felt. It was almost like a flying dream. If he thought too much, he would lose his sense of knowing how to fly. But he instinctively sought to re-remember how it felt so you could continue to fly and stop from falling. Zine stopped, peering around a corner, the sound of fighting echoing down the lane. Steve poked his head past her and said, Afray! and disappeared around the corner. Heather hissed his name, but he was long gone. Stay with the girls. Michael said to Bear as he rushed past. He turned the corner and saw several dwarves being swarmed by goblins and Steve charging into the mass of steel and limbs. An arrow whizzed past his ear and Michael spun to see Zine notching another. Her look said it all. Point taken, Michael said and raced after his idiot friend. Steve moved like a blur among the monsters, swinging his hammer and dealing massive damage to the malformed beast laughing the whole time as he worked his way to the middle where the other Lektok grunted and swore as they fought. Michael followed, dispatching the one Steve only wounded, slicing and kicking his way, trusting Zine's arrow to protect his flank. Like the one before, the fight simultaneously took forever and was over in an instant. Michael counted twenty broken bodies littering the ground when it was over. Yeah! Michael looked up to see a dwarf pointing one of his hand axes at him. Sparky! Ah, oh, great, Michael breathed. It was a group from when he first entered the city. Hey, he just saved your butt, bucko, Steve said, stepping up beside Michael, hefting his hammer. Oh, and it's a little horsefly, too. Michael heard Steve's knuckles pop from gripping the hammer's shaft. Easy, Steve, Michael muttered. We don't have time for this. He's right. Like before, a blonde stepped forward in front of Ebb. He's right. They helped without being asked. Remember your honor. My honor, Ebb said, thrusting out a thick finger. Gren, that one rides a horse, and the other one doesn't deserve that sword. They fought with us, and? Gren's response was cut short by a trumpet being blown by a centurion at the far end of the road. Soon, both armored soldiers and robed priests began to flow into the street. One rode tall in a saddle among the throng, seeming to drive them forward. Take them! The rider's voice thundered, unnaturally loud, rebounding off the buildings and down the lane. At his command, the mass began to sprint towards them. Even the centurions broke rank, shoving and pushing each other, consumed with the need to be the first to obey the command. Maybe we could talk about this later, Steve said, squaring off to the approaching tide. The rider felt wrong to Michael. An absence pulled from him. 
a feeling of wrongness, wholly different from the purity of the omnio radiated from the figure. There was something else, but not from the Hyperborean on horseback. Michael felt a different power, pure and simple, just before a wall of fire erupted in front of the mass. Some of the foreigners, too slow to react, filled with madness of the command, stumbled through the flames, burning like torches in the dark night. Trendok marched past Michael, hand and staff held high. In Michael's mind's eye, he shone like a blue sun, full of power and might. Go, Trendok said. Your fight is not here. Leander, go with them as well. He turned back to the wall of fire and cried out as a spear pierced his shoulder. Run! Leander shoved Michael, turning back to Trendok. Steve pulled Michael into motion, following the other dwarves as they sprinted down the lane. Michael looked back, but only once. He saw the flaming wall, but only stood half as high. Two shadows stood in contrast against the light, one leaning on the other, and the Michael turned the corner. The other groups were waiting for them when they entered the warehouse. They had escaped without incident, and Zoe started to complain that she was about to send out scouts when Zine quieted her with the news of Trendok. Michael ignored all of it and hugged his little sister hard enough to crack her back. There was a quick discussion with the seven Lektok that followed them to the warehouse. The number did not escape Steve, who tossed several snide references that no one but his friends understood. Heather was able to quiet him, saying he wasn't helping the situation. Michael had rarely seen Steve in such a snit, and he didn't know if it was the ungratefulness of Ebb or being called a little horsefly that wrinkled his friend the most, or maybe it was the fact that Trendok may be dying as they debated whether or not they wanted to hang around. We'll come, Ebb finally said. This city has left a bad taste in my mouth. They passed through a door into the city wall that was hidden behind some bales of hay. Steve muttered something about not a real secret passage, but Michael's eyes were inward, tentatively touching the omnia. He could feel the power being used behind him, like flashes of lightning in his mind. And as long as those blue lights kept flashing, he told himself, Trindok lived. The unness was there too, a void squirming on the edges like a smothering ooze choking the edges of the light. The unness seemed closer than the light, at least by a little bit, like sludge stuck to a shoe that could never fully be scraped off. Relief washed over Michael when they emerged into the open air. The spring returned to the dryad steps being out from among the city walls, and even Steve seemed to shed a tensus to his shoulder that Michael hadn't noticed until it was gone. They snuck in small groups, careful not to catch the eye of any guards from the battlements, but Michael assumed all the eyes of the city were turned inward with the high priest looking for them and the exos wreaking havoc in the city. He caught a whiff of smoke in the air and wondered how much of Ropinmon would be left in the morning. A tall, thin Hyperborean named Salsus stood in a clearing about a mile from the wall. He sat amongst the horses and supplies. He stood and greeted them in a way that lacked any warmth but held no hostility. The group began to prepare to part ways. Zoe gathered with her dryads, discussing plans for the travel back home. The centurions checked their horses and said they would travel with Zoe's company as far as their fort and report to their commander about possibly mustering force to fight the high priest. In Michael's mind, the flashes ceased, but he still felt a little of the unness continue. He approached Zoe and Zine as they talked about their two separate journeys. Michael had been avoiding Zoe's look ever since he escaped the castle. 
how he felt now was strangely reminiscent of standing on the wall during his first high school dance, desperately trying to summon the courage to ask Becky Shango to dance. He did, and she accepted for at least a few steps to the music and then left him awkwardly standing on the dance floor. I think Trendock's gone. Zoe peered at him. And how would you know? I can't feel him, you know, he gestured with his hand. Then perhaps he was victorious, Zine said. It doesn't matter, Zoe said. You must begin your travel north. He will find you if he lives. It is too dangerous to remain. I do not trust this forest. It smells of darkness. Kith, the mousy dryad that Trendok had saved, knocked Michael to the ground and leapt at Zoe with long knives in hand and unness leaking from her eyes. Well, that's all for this episode, Journeyers. And who doesn't like a good cliffhanger? So come back next week and we'll see if Zoe lives, or if Trendok lives, or what the next move is for the group. Until then, thank you for listening, and be good to one another.